Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. We are your hosts, Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. We have two special guests joining us today. My husband, Lucas, is joining this particular conversation. And then I want to introduce Jeremy Pryor, second time guest on the show. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us again here. Absolutely, guys. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Awesome. Well, let's just unpack a little bit of why we are talking to Jeremy Pryor. The first conversation we had with you, Jeremy, we really dug into the idea of family as a whole and really why we need to think about family multi-generationally and not just as a collection of individuals. And I want to get into a little bit more of that today just to put some context around this conversation that we're having today, which is specifically on family culture. And so just to lead into the conversation a little bit, culture is something that you know we see in corporate the corporate world corporate culture makes a lot of sense you have reasons to focus on your corporate culture maybe it's profitability it's increasing your revenue it's having better employee retention it's uh, making sure that you have a team that wants to work together and isn't leaving you which is going to lower your cost of turnover and so it's good on a financial front it's good for the business it's good for your customers but family culture i mean we don't yes. really talk about that in our culture. So today we are going to dig into this topic of family culture because if you're interested in building a legacy and having a family that lasts for multiple generations and creating generational wealth, then those connections and relationships from one family member to the next are really important. And how do you have strong relationships? Well, the glue in between those building blocks of family really is the culture, the day in and day out, how you identify and define your family and how each family member connects into that whole. So that's the reason for today's conversation. So I hope that you will stay tuned for what we're unpacking with Jeremy today. But before we do that, I do want to introduce Jeremy and just give you a little bit of background information in case perhaps you're not aware of Jeremy and his work with family teams and several other awesome things. So Jeremy and his wife, April, met in Jerusalem in 1997 when they were students. They've spent the last 20 years building team prior together. You'll notice team there. Team is a really important word in Jeremy's life and in mine as well. So they have five kids, Kelsey, Jackson, Sydney, Elisa, and Kyra. Am I pronouncing their names right? That's right. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. They live in a multi-generational house with Jeremy's parents and April's mom in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, just a few miles from Cincinnati, Ohio. They've founded and lead several businesses and nonprofits, including, how do you pronounce it? Epiphio? Oh, Epiphio. Yeah, okay. that was our, yep. Awesome. We've sold that company, but yeah, that's one of ours that we founded. Oh, yeah. awesome. So that was a video production agency, Just So, a quilt shop, familyteams.com, which is how we became aware of you and your work. And that's training content for families. Then you also have a thousand houses, which is a network for Cincinnati disciple making households and the story formed life, a discipleship training resource. So for fun, the priors study Hebrew, take trips, take groups to Israel. And you say anyone can join you. Yes. And then they also enjoy deep conversation over great food and read Tolkien by firelight. So yes. just giving some context for who we're talking to today. So Jeremy. Can you, I mean, I kind of gave a little bit of a context for what is culture all about, but I mean, there's so much that we can dig into today, but what would you say if I just asked you point blank, what is family culture and why does it matter? Yeah. Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize that when you're starting a family, this is one of the, the great privileges is that you get to design the kind of family that you want to have. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of us think maybe in very automatic fashion um, and unintentionally kind of go into this and often sort of replay maybe the, our families of origin. Uh, but just like when you, and I, I, you know, it is interesting to, to know what you were saying earlier, and that is that, that uh, it is a fairly new observation um, that companies can shape culture through things like values and mission statements and vision 
um, that you can, you know, do things inside the company to create a certain uh, kind of way of being that's unique. Um, and so, uh, you know, th- those very distinctive values that you have are what you can use to shape a company culture. And so you can begin to identify distinctive values that you and your spouse um, want to express in your own household. And you can go deep into that. And it, it's a wonderful experience to grow up in a household um, as a child that has a particular culture that brings the family together. And it can be, it can be based on things that you really feel called to, that you really enjoy. Um, and, and so you, there's not sort of a, a blueprint for family um, that is so rigid that you can't bring a lot of those distinct distinctives into the family and make it something that's truly unique. And so I, I would love to you know, walk down the street um, someday and be able to look at different houses and be almost able to tell the kind of culture that that exists in those families by just even the way that they express it through the way they design their houses or you know but we tend to be so cookie cutter in our culture we tend to not think about let's create something that, that is really uniquely us and um, and so yeah we've we've done that we've you know challenged uh, some you know I would say just kind of the, the real normal the things the things that make our family unique. And we really try to push into those, those things and, and have that unique uh, values expressed. And um, that's been, that's been a really wonderful part of what it means to, to build a family. I love that. And I think it was really important to just jump headlong right into this topic. I think there's so much context that we can lay for it um, and talking about your work and talking about what a family even is. And I do want to go and backtrack and cover some of that. But I think it's really important to know that whatever you are creating in your life, you have, you said you can design what kind of family you want to have. I mean, if you're in business, you're designing what kind of business you want to have. You're living a life and deciding what kind of life you want to have. And isn't it so cool that we have the ability to create that? I mean, that's what life is all about. So, um, so kind of, can you dig us a little deeper into where you first found the importance of family and really um, kind of some of those ancient roots versus what the modern way of looking at family is in our culture in America today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I I was just, I come at this as somebody who was very confused um, about the topic of family, not very excited. Uh, It just didn't seem like something that had a lot of, uh, that really was working well. I grew up in the Seattle area. There was just a lot of divorce and I just noticed a lot of brokenness. It was very predictably a tough thing. I mean, you might have 50% of couples that stay together, but even in those cases, um, was family something that they really cared about or were they being kind of dutiful about the way that they were uh, going about family life? And so seeing that level of brokenness just made it really difficult for me to be excited about family. And um, But that did create an open question in my mind, which was like, well, you know, I, I'm someone who follows the scriptures, I'm like, is there, is there a reason why God designed this? Is there, you know, or is this just, you know, is there something that we're missing? And that's when I was in, uh, I had done a semester abroad in Israel where I met my wife. I was 23 years old and I, I kept running across um, particularly fathers um, being with their children. I saw it um, as I was traveling to Israel. I saw it constantly in the months I was there and just sort of observing their culture. And um, as I began to dive into that, the deeper I would ask, what, why is there a value that these, particularly these fathers have for, for children? They just kept coming back to Abraham and they would talk a lot about how they saw Abraham as a model father and that they were, they were weak, working to build a multi-generational family. And as I began to, and I, you know, I've seen the Godfather, I've like seen little examples of this and, you know, and sort of like uh, movies and, and some cultural references but it certainly wasn't something that I ever thought I could choose to build. I thought there was, you no, know, your family, this is what you're building. You're building a springboard for individual success. You're there to, to help each of your kids fly the nest. And then, you know, they do that. And if you're a successful parent, you know, the whole thing sort of self-destructs and starts over again when they start their families. And that's the cycle. And, um, and so that's what you're signing up for when you're starting a family. And here you had families that had deep root systems that really understood and knew their family stories going back hundreds of years and some, many times much farther than that. Um, and that they were, they, that, that those root structures created a tremendously deep identity and inspiration for generations and that continuity. I remember one time I was in a, um, we were trying to find a restaurant in Jerusalem and we, uh, we were looking around, there was this outdoor restaurant we like to go to. So we went there and it was absolutely packed. And so there, we said, is there any room that we actually had this one table off in a corner somewhere? 
And so we, we, they sat us at this table and we looked at this just packed uh, sort of uh, courtyard in this restaurant, probably about 200 people eating a meal. And it was a bar mitzvah. And, um, and it was really cool. We got to sit there in, in a bar mitzvah in Jerusalem. But, but what was interesting is, so they, they were, there was a mic and set up and people were coming up and saying different things to this young uh, 13-year-old boy. Um, they were all clearly by their accents and their language, they were all Americans who flew in to Jerusalem to uh-huh. celebrate this bar mitzvah. And um, I remember the grandfather got up and he read this poem that he had written. And it was just, I mean, it was like tear jerking poem about how much he loved his grandson and that, you know, I will now never die because a part of me lives on in you. And I was like, what would it be like to be a 13 year old listening to your grandfather who, you know, who f- has flown along with your aunts and uncles and all your extended family, you know, uh, you know, over 2000 miles to, to be there to celebrate this event. Um, and I'm like, this is why the, the family is so rich here. There's something they know about family that they got from the scriptures that many of us who are, you know, in, in sort of Christian traditions have just kind of uh, capitulated to the culture. And so I decided to, uh, to really investigate this and, you know, talking about culture, it, it, it's really cool. We, we live in a free country. You can design whatever kind of family you want, you know, uh, within reason. And so if you want to create a family that's multi-generational and values those things or has other distinct values, you can do that. And so I, I began to really uh, begin to adopt values that I, th- I thought were far more consistent with, with family flourishing than the ones that I generally saw in the culture around me, even in the Christian culture. That's how it kind of started for me. That is just so cool. And I love that you shared that story about the bar mitzvah. I mean, I, I was feeling that as you're, as you're sharing this, this grandfather sharing with his grandchild. Um, and just sharing love and communicating clearly and recognizing that he was never going to die because of the grandchild. I mean, that's just so rich. What a rich story. And, and so you, you started seeing this creating of a culture of multiple generations and not just saying these are our values and these are, are my vision and my mission. And this is what I stand for, but, actually living it. And I think that's for me where I separate or draw a line kind of between clarifying what's important to you and then living it out because there's, it's really important to clarify what is important to you as a family. But then how do you transition that besides just saying it's important to you? How do you actually make it really practical and tangible? And so, so you kind of alluded to starting to craft this multi-generational family culture. When you think of family culture, how do you break down what does the culture actually mean? What are kind of some of the the components or the the elements of a culture? Yeah, well, I, I think I think that the one of the most basic ways to think about culture are the repeated actions that are distinctive to that group. So, um, so like to me, it's it's you know sometimes companies do this where they'll come up with what are really aspirational values, things that they wish were true about their mm-hmm. company. And they, you know, put them on the wall and it doesn't actually have an impact. And so you have to, to me, there has to be a way to translate those values into repeated action. Um, and we have uh, two massively powerful templates given to us by God in Genesis 1 for crafting um, repeated action. And they are the week and the year. Those are the two most powerful. There's also the month, but those are the two most powerful. And so we, we very carefully cultivate our weekly rhythm as a family around our values. And we also carefully um, uh, curate our, our annual rhythm around the things that we value. So, you know, we, we have designed a, this seven day week, and this is one of the things, again, we, we learned in Israel and it started with us keeping a Sabbath um, as a family. And this wasn't really out of any kind of religious obligation. We did it purely because we thought this just seems like a really good way for us to, to experience, um, you know, depth as a family team. And what really got us was actually not the rest, although we, we, we learned to really enjoy and participate in that fully, but it was the multi-generational family meal that kicked off the, the Sabbath. When we experienced that in Israel, I was just like, this is incredible. It's, not, it's no mystery why uh, they create multi-generational families in this culture. Um, I, I think if you had an epic multi-generational family meal that was weekly, you will not be able to stop a multi-generational team from emerging from that rhythm. That's a powerful rhythm. And so what we need to begin to do is share amongst various families 
these powerful rhythms. Like if you want to shape your family, um, craft rhythms that, that really uh, cra- create those values. So if you want to be the kind of family that is very artistic, then, then you need to put art into your weekly rhythm. If you want to be musical, you need to put music into your, you know, your weekly rhythm. You want, if you want to be um, literary, and that's a big thing for me and my wife, this is why we, we read books and you know, that's that we want to make sure that's a part of our weekly rhythm as a family, you know, whatever those things are, if you want to be a serving family, then serve as a family every week. You know, if you, if you want to, if it's a really core value, I would say the difference between maybe core value and something that you might want to express, um, you know, as more of a secondary value, it really just comes down to frequency often. Like if it's a core value, do it every week and uh, you get to do this. this is what's amazing. And I think, I think what's, what's really tough for, for modern families is that they, they expect that their children will have and their family's rhythm will be purely designed around um, other people deciding what those things are for them. And so mm. usually when, you know, we have five kids, you know, and we, you know, we're, our kids are, you know, teenagers are coming, coming out of teenage years. Most families, when they have, you know, that number of kids, you're just going to be running every which direction, you know, and so many different things as um, you're, that you're trying to keep up with. And the coach and the teacher and the youth pastor and 10 other and, and your kids' friends, all of the, those people have a much louder voice about the kind of culture that your family has than you do as the mother or father. And so sort of in that analogy where, you know, you put the rocks in first, you know, and then you put the sand in the water. Like, so the rocks in this case are, we're going to say, here are some things we're doing as a family. I know that that coach says, you have to be here on Tuesday. No, on Tuesday, our family does this, you know, on Sunday, our family does this, like, People, parents are scared to death to to design culture today. They think that they're doing something because they're, they they believe it's actually in their child's best interest. Their child is a part of other people's teams, and that their team is secondary or tertiary or way down the list. And so we just decided, and this was again, this is just a decision that we we really came to after seeing cultures that just were designed totally differently. That look, our 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 family team is going to come first, you know. I'm sure our kids have great friends and, you know, would love to be a part of other teams and our kids participated in some sports and things as well that, you know, we could, we could design around our family rhythms, but, but man, I, I mean, as you get older, one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, I, I don't know how, how many of those people that I was friends with in high school and on teams with, I'm, I have a relationship with, but I have a relationship with my siblings and my parents, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, in my late forties and um, my kids are likely going to have the same experience that, that what we mean by socialization culturally today um, is that we, our kids are really, really good at creating peer relationships and really, really bad at multi-generational relationships. Is that real good socialization? Um, because we don't live our life that way. You know, you live your life that way in these very strange bubbles of time, like high school and college and the rest of your life, you live multi-generationally when you're in a, in a, in a company, when you're at a church, and certainly when you're in any, any kind of family environment, you're dealing with, with people that are much younger than you, people that are much older than you, um, and that's a beautiful thing. And it's something you can design and have good relationships with. But I, I was, I was really, I would say just for myself, I, I was, um, I was very bad <laughs> at having relationships with people older and younger than me. I didn't even know how to do it. I mean, I was like, I was, I spent, you know, you spend your whole childhood in, in peer centered relationships. I've spent my entire adulthood in multi-generational relationships. And I'm like, wait a minute, is that really good socialization? Um, <laughs> so that's another kind of element of, of trying to, just I want to give I want to give families courage to understand that that designing a family rhythm um, around what the values you have is really important to establish, and that doesn't mean that that there's not going to be opportunity for your children to express individual interests and in other things. I think that's that's something that you want to find ways to include, but I, I think there these things there are, they are intention, and sometimes you do have to prioritize one over the other. And what I really do want to challenge is the default assumption that the family always comes last. And that mm-hmm. is the default assumption in our culture, that, that if, if any of those other places say, hey, we're, we're, we have an event or we're going to design this rhythm for, for our ministry, for our team, for our school system, then the family has to suck it up. And, and I, I think that's, that, uh, that default assumption is really, really can be destructive to the idea of crafting a family culture. Well, the, one of the things as you've been talking this whole time, I want to ask your opinion. First of all, people that are listening are are probably thinking, well, that's all well and good, but why do we want to have an intentional culture? That that's probably because we have a family culture, whether yeah. you're trying to do an intentional family culture or not. Yeah. 
because culture is actually what you do. Um, now, what you do could be bad relative to what you want, I guess, is because who says what's good or bad? But so maybe for the next couple of minutes, you might talk about why do you want a family culture that is intentional? Yeah. And then the, the second thing is then to kind of deconstruct why family cultures have actually gone in the way they have gone. And my theory is, is that we've gone from a more rural environment where the family was 100% needed in a rural situation to actually survive to a more of a city dwelling family where it's not as needed because all the conveniences that we have now, you're not relying on the family to provide all these different things. And so it kind of breaks down that way. And then yeah. the final thing, if you could comment on is what I've known from my educational years is parents, parents don't know how to develop a family culture. And so what they do is they look at other parents for guidance and what they don't realize is those parents don't know either. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. So I'll start with the first one, Bruce. Those are great, great questions. And um, so I, I would say that that the the case for for the family culture being preeminent than some of these other cultures, I, I think, ought to be made at the same level that I think our culture has begun to have these same conversations. And it really does come down to identity. I think that's a really important thing to to focus on. And I think that a lot of what, 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 what you, like who you are is so important uh, in terms of deciding what priorities are, are most important in your life. Okay. So, so, you know, so for example, we, we really, we really have created a culture, you know, that where we, we tell <clears throat> um, men and women that your work identity is, is preeminent and that human flourishing is created when we, we properly prioritize our identities. And so, the case I would make is that is that you can look at all those hats and just just try to understand what what is your priority. And again, we live in a free country, and so this is not saying that that anyone should be forced to have my priorities. But I do think that we need to we need to expose the decisions that are being made by default. That's more of what I'm really mm -hmm. interested in doing. And so and so when my my children are growing up, they have they do have to wear a lot of hats, right? They, they're a student, and that's an important identity that they that they have. And you know, my child has, you know, they're a friend and that's an important identity that they have. And, um, and so you can kind of go down the list of the things that they do and the identities that they're taking on. And my case is that the identity of son, daughter, sister, brother, father, mother, husband, wife are better identities. Those they're deeper identities than student, teammate, friend, which are also good identities, but the identities, those are identities we have lost. We don't understand how important they are. They, we don't understand how critical they are to, to the flourishing of humanity. Um, and so this is something you can decide to do. And, and, and so, you know, our, our, when my daughter, you know, became old enough to have an Instagram account, the first thing she put on her profile is daughter, you know? Um, and I, that really struck me. I didn't ask her, you know, but it's like she, a lot of people don't feel their daughterness, their sonship, their fatherhood, and so because we have, and I think a lot of where this comes from in our family <clears throat> is that at that multi-generational family meal, the thing I've been, I've said, and, and this is difficult for me to be honest, like my temperament, I'm, I'm hyper individualistic in my temperament. So a lot of what I'm telling you guys is hmm. coming out of things that I had, I had to do intentionally. Like I really like to use that word, Bruce. I do think this is about a decision you have to make for me. It, it is a, it is a daily decision. And, and especially in that weekly meal to say, I want to be a father at this table. Um, and so what I tell people when we get to a table is we're going to experience our family-ness. Everyone at this table is their family identity. We have anywhere better to go. It's Friday night. We have nothing else planned. We can stay up late. We're going to eat a great meal. We're going to hang out together. And I'm going to be a father. I'm going to play the role of father. You're going to be a son. You're going to be a daughter. You're going to be a grandfather. You're going to be a grand, you're going to be an aunt and an uncle. We, we are our family identities. Where you sit at the table is going to be somewhat reflective of, of your family role, how we interact, the kinds of questions, the kind of conversations that we have. You know, and so it's just they get to experience that pure belonging. My favorite book on mm. both business culture and family culture is a book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. It's an incredible book. Again, my favorite parenting book isn't a parenting book, it's a business book. But but what he does is he basically describes how you create what he calls signals of belonging in a team environment. And it he 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 describes this beautifully in this book. 
um, and, and how that works. And so that's what a Sabbath dinner is doing. It's just one enormous signal to your family that, that you know, I hope you have good friends. I hope you belong other places, but you belong here. Like you are a son, you are a daughter. And those are things in our heart that, that kind of come alive and that in our culture, we, we, we get so badly wounded if we have experiences of son, daughter, father, mother, wife, husband, that, that violate those very, very tender parts of, of who we are. In, in. And so what happens to many of us is that if you have negative experiences in those areas, you, you start to wall off you know, those parts of your heart. And a lot of the identity conversations that are, that are being had in our culture are from wounded people who are understandably been very badly hurt because these family identities have, been, have not gone well for them. And so they, they are seeking other alternative identities. Um, and, and that, that is, you know, that, that is that, and they're trying to figure out would society be better if everyone existed with much more, um, atomistic individual identities versus family identities. And again, that, that's a very open conversation. Let's have that conversation. Um, and I am, I'm operating from, you know, a set of axioms that say, that say that the family identities actually are better at leading to human flourishing. What we need to do is heal family identities and help people understand what they are. And if you've had very negative experiences in these areas, the answer is not less family or le- or not healthy family, but it's to actually learn how to build a healthy family, to be equipped to build healthy family identity. So that's that's the first step. And we can dive into the second question, but I don't know if you guys want to interact around that one. Well, I, yeah, actually, I, actually, I actually, I'm sorry, Rachel. I wanted to bring up a point is from that right there is, unfortunately, some of the, the pain in families is, uh, certain family make members taking on the roles of other family mem- members. I've seen where like uh, the oldest son has to take on the, the role of the father because the father is either broken by some kind of addiction or yep. uh, low self-esteem because he was broken down from his family prior and or, or one of the daughters actually takes on the role of the mother because mother can't keep herself together. So she tries to keep the family together. And so those, uh, those identities are switched and it really does cause, you know, uh, identifiable problems within the family culture. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's a huge issue. <clears throat> and I, I think that that's, you know, there, there's, that's kind of, again, it's kind of where I started this, this, this journey for me started with, with a really open question. I think everybody needs to answer that. And that is, is the family a good design or not? Is it essentially built to be dysfunctional? You know, because mm. is the fact that we experience so much dysfunction in families and that the idea of a functional family is a punchline in our culture because it, it's like, it doesn't, does that really exist? That's like a, it's like a, an extinct animal, you know? <laughs> um, does that mean that, that this is again, an experiment that's gone off the rails? And I, I really considered that as, as a, as a legitimate option. Like maybe this is just a bad idea. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe there's no, no such thing as a functional family. And when I saw whole cultures of functional families, I knew something was really wrong in our culture. Mm. Now that's one of the great gifts of travel, by the way, like be, and, and really going cross-cultural. Sometimes you don't know your own culture until you've seen another one. And this was definitely the case for me when it comes to family. I, until I, had, I saw just a whole culture full of, you know, mostly functioning families. I'm sure there's a lot of dysfunction and a lot of pain going on in those families, but, but by and large, the marriages stay together uh, at a much higher rate. The, the, the way that as I interacted, especially became friends with people, the way they talked about their mothers and fathers and siblings was totally different. And so I just was, I, I, think, I think what we, we have to understand is we have participated in an experiment of hyper-individualism. And that, one of, the, one of the, the side effects of that experiment is the destruction of the family. Because it is hard to say, I'm going to get, I mean, Friday night to hang out with your family, your grandparents, and like, come on, there's a football game going on if you're in high school. Like there's other places to be. Um, and so as an individual, is this really where I want to be? Is this the number one place? But of course, if you, we know that if every single individual does what is absolutely in a nuanced fashion, what is best for their preferences, you will be alone because no one is going to share all of your preferences. And so there has to be some give and take if you're going to have a community or any kind of relationships. And so a family is the same way. And this is, and this is why I take it on, you know, sort of my role as a father. I think one of the, the things that a father has to project in the in the family team environment is they have to say guys i 
I'm going to I'm going to lay down my preferences. Yes, I mean I I I I know that if you you know give me a glass of bourbon and a cigar and ten other guys talk about philosophy uh, on a Friday night, I will probably have a better time. You know, like I can I can design an evening that is really designed around my preferences, and I I do this you know when I want to hang out with my friends. Um, you know, you know, I know a lot of guys are into golf or whatever you're into. Like I've got, I've got all kinds of hobbies and things I would love to do. Um, but I'll tell you, like I, my family needs to see that, like, I'm primarily going to prioritize these relationships, you know, hanging out with a seven-year-old is not maybe as fulfilling as, you know, as, as hanging out with your buddies or something. Um, but that's, that's part of what I think this is what I mean by hyper-individualism has been pushed to such an extent. And so you have, and, and this is why we have to go back to ancient cultures because ancient cultures They've tried this and they have practices and rhythms where they can demonstrate to us, here's a way of being that creates family flourishing. And here's what it means to be a good father. Like here are some roles that you need to embrace. And, and they're, they're going to they're gonna grate against your individual identity. You know, like, like for me, one of them was <clears throat> that like I, I felt very strange uh, trying to stand up in front of my family and say anything kind of like, like uh, faith-based or meaningful, um, it felt it felt totally out of place because like, I, I wasn't used to seeing that in other families. And so I was used to seeing that only in a church environment. And so I could do that in a church environment, but in a family environment with like kids around and we're going to talk, we're going to, you know, we're going to actually get into something really meaningful. But one of the things I noticed in ancient cultures is that, that there was a role that the father tended to have, which was to stand up at, you know, in, whether it's holidays or other meals or important times, and and actually bring the the team into into the meaning of the moment. You'll see this even in business meetings, right? If there's a big business celebration, the CEO is going to get up and say, "Guys, it was a hard year. Like, you know, we did this stuff and we did it, and good job, team." And every coach, you know, has that kind of locker room speech where they're like, "Guys, we're a team. This is what it takes." I'm totally uncomfortable <laughs> with that role. Okay, like I love when I see it in the films. I loved when I when I got to experience it when I was on a team. Um, but that is part of what a father does. And I am a father. So I had to get over myself, you know, and do what my friends call the Fezziwig speech, you know, from the, the, um, Christmas Carol where he gets up, you know, and says, yeah, you know, like we had this great year or whatever. So, I mean, I give lots of Fezziwig speeches They're not long, you know, they're like, you know, two minutes long, <clears throat> but I, I try to bring my family into like, then that they get to see my passion for this thing that we, we get to do. That's just one example of like an ancient uh, practice that fathers always knew that they had. They had to preside over the family meal and express the meaning that 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 is that we 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 have forgotten so long ago that mm-hmm. like it, we had to be archaeologists to dig it up. And, and there's a lot of these kinds of these kind of practices that I feel like I've had to either go cross cultural or or historic to to even discover like what is this role of, of a father? What do I do? Like. You know, I, I certainly can't go to popular culture to find out what a father does. The, a father is a punchline in our culture. Um, you know, which, by the way, what's really weird is coaches are not. You know, if you've noticed, and this is why, I, when when I try to train fathers, the first thing I tell them is that that if if an ancient father were to come to to uh, you know to a modern day family, they wouldn't recognize what that guy does as who they are. You know, but if they went to a you know a really a passionate like football team or basketball team and looked at a coach or, you know, the leader of a company, they would say, Oh, that's closer to what, to what I actually do. Um, and so part of this is that that's, that's, that's part of where we can go to find out what kinds of practices we need to resurrect in order to lead our families. Yeah. Um, Rabbi Lapin, who's had on the podcast, I don't know, five times, uh, talks about how there's, the more things change, the more we need to depend on those things that don't change. Mm. Um, and so he compares and contrasts. There's like technology is always changing. Medicine's always changing. But then there's areas or things like parenting, um, um, God, other things that are like yeah. that uh, are consistent throughout time. And so in your book, um, Family Revision, I don't know if you see that, um, you lay out three the three basic tenets um of the classical family one individual success is dependent on valuing the family team over the individual which you mentioned uh two family success is determined multi-generationally 
And then three, the primary task of the current generation is to faithfully steward, expand, and pass on the resources of the family to the next generation. So, um, and then at some point, not too far after that in the book, you compare and contrast uh, a class, like a, I think it's a son, a, a modern family, and then a, a son born out of a couple thousand years ago in, in, a, in a classical family. And you compare and contrast. And one of the things that struck me, you're talking about identity, is the identity formation of those two children. And what is going to be the identity of that child at, say, 18, early 20s when they go out to work versus the child who raised the family where their identity came from the family, whereas the other child, basically, his identity came from his friends at school or um, it was always something outside of the house. Uh, So, yeah, that might be something... I think to tie into uh, Bruce's question, but then also the maybe to go a little bit deeper on identity and identity formation. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I'll just jump in here for a second because I was wanting to um, share that as well, that same, the idea of what is the purpose of family in the first place? And I think it kind of does tie back to Bruce's question of why do we want to focus on culture? Because talking about culture is really exciting to me. But until somebody buys into the idea of, well, why is it better for me, for my kids, for my grandkids, if we have this really, really strong culture? Well, they know who they are. They have a better sense of where they came from. They they have more confidence to face things in the world because they're not feeling like an island, a silo, a, a person that just has to start from scratch and prove themselves. They have this whole story, these generations behind them that are rooting for them, that are cheering them on, that are part of who they are. And I think that is super attractive. I think so many of us didn't come from that. And the idea that we have the opportunity to create that for our kids and our grandkids so that we continue to live on past our own life. I mean, that's like really, really profound. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of like that <clears throat> adage that, it, you know, the, the deeper the roots, the higher the tree. And, and this is a big thing we can offer to our children is that, that they need to know who they are. And, and you know, our, our culture, again, because we're running this experiment, and one of the elements of that is to go to war against any innate identities um, and say, look, you, you have to be able to change all of your identities to fit you as an individual. And anything that, that, that feels like it, it could be imposed upon you is like is doing some kind of damage to the individual. Um, and it, that's just not how most people flourish in the world. Um, they, they really need to know who they are. They, they, they treasure their, their background, their traditions, their, um, there's ways in which that can become a straitjacket and that, that needs to be checked. But, um, but man, that's much better to start from deep roots and then to begin to explore you know, how much of that you want to fully embrace, if there are there things that you want to alter, then have zero roots and then try to reinvent everything and not belong anywhere and not be anything that, you mm-hmm. know, not, so that, that's, that, that is the prescription that it seems like our culture is attempting to, to, to see. And you can see the, the, that lack of identity and what the con- incredible confusion it creates for children, especially as you get into that teenage years. And it's just like, who am I? is the question that just dominates people in our culture. And we're like, and, and we refuse to go back to the family as being the root structure of where those questions um, are answered, even though that's where that happened historically. And I think the bias against the family that is so strong in our culture um, is just a sense that like, it's, I, I can't control it totally as an individual, right? Um, you know, it's not fair that my dad and my sister, and my brother and my mom and my grandma, and they all, and my great grandparents, and, you know, they all get a vote. But one of the things that I, it, you know, that happens anyway, is that we all are going to either express or react against our family of origin. Like, this is just the way the world is, you know, it's not, you, you can't change it. Like mm-hmm. if you choose to leave your family and go in a totally different direction, you will still every day of your life be reacting in some way uh, from that family, like you're going to be impacted. And this is the way things are. Children come into the world, extremely impressionable, you know, not very wise, and they need to be built up and molded at some level by the influences that are around them. And so you don't get to design a different kind of child that, mm-hmm. that doesn't need that. That comes, you know, the, every child needs that every child will be. And so it's, 
it's really a question of, of who's doing all of that, uh, that, that shaping and that identity formation. Um, that's, that's, and I, I think the family is the place where we get to do that. However, imperfectly. Yeah, so Jeremy, maybe, do you, oh. I'm just going to say maybe the, the following question is how do you compete then? Cause it seems like in a way you think of branding, uh, companies brand themselves and the, the family and company is very similar in a sense. We're, what we're talking about is branding your family in a sense, your family's competing with these other, uh, sources of, of, of groups or, um, maybe that's the best way to say it, other groups that might be trying to want bring that the individual into their group and say who their identity is in a sense it's like the family's competing with there's these other competing whether it's the friends at school or um other places yeah so what, what you talked about how do you the compete? weekly rhythm yeah like like how do you compete with and the, does it have anything to do with <clears throat> i know your answer but does it have anything to do with most other groups have a purpose, a stated goal, uh, yeah. something you're trying to accomplish together that bonds everyone together. And now you're, you know, the, there's camaraderie because of the struggle and the challenge that you're working to overcome. But the family seems like there doesn't seem to be a purpose usually. Yeah. So maybe those are. Yeah, that, that this is where I, I feel like, you know, I think a lot of these things were a lot more innate, but they need to be much more intentional because there are those like you're describing, Lucas, th there are these competing influences. Um, and so, and this is the reason why in the business world, we have developed a set of tools to help sh shape the culture over time, help, help to create, what are those values? What are those repeated practices? Do we need to actually define our, our, our mission statement? Do we need to create a clear vision for who we are as a business? And, you know, I was, I, I got, I was a privilege of, of getting to be a CEO of a company for a number of years and, you know, got to see how challenging it is to implement those tools, but how critical they are if you really want to grow. Um, and so I think, I think that we now have, that's why I love these books, um, like Daniel Coyle's book, um, um, the culture code or, you know, Patrick, Patrick, uh, Linciani's book, uh, the advantage is also kind of lays out how you create values and mission and vision for any kind of group. And a family is a group. And as, as, as if you want the, that group to become a team and to cohere, then you have to have a vision. You gotta, you gotta understand what your mission is. You've got to understand what those values are. In, you know, it, within the Christian sphere, um, you know, the very first uh, chapter of Genesis basically describes the family as coming preloaded with a mission, right? So it, it was actually for a mission that the first family was created, according to Genesis 1. And in there, we read that when God created the first family, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. And so actually, when we when we design like our family and what we're doing, we, we do those things in that, that order. First, we become a fruitful family. Like, okay, are, is there a love and belonging? Is there peace in the home? Do we know how to create order? Do we, can we create productivity? You know, what's going on with you know, our businesses? Then we, we multiply that fruitfulness. So now, now that there's a lot of flourishing going on in our family, we, we want to bring more and more people into that. And that, that's not just our children, but it's you know, adopting others like you know, spiritual orphans. And oftentimes, in many of the families that we, we coach have adopted, you know, um, physical orphans. And so you, you multiply, then you begin to subdue, which is really the, the process of bringing that order over a larger and larger sphere. And so that's, you know, whether that's in, in the context of the business and then ultimately of course it, it creates a ruling family. And I think the families that are fruitful, that multiply, that have successfully subdued, they're the families that rule and they already do. Again, like I'm not actually talking about designing an alternative governmental system. You can just you know, if you want to go and, and start to look at the boards of directors of businesses or the people elected to Congress in, in the state or in the nation, you will find over and over and over and over again an absolute overabundance of, of families and multi-generational families compared to the general population. It'll be, it'll shock you, the percentage of, of people there that come from multi-generational family lines, even though they're a very small percentage of our population. You know, and I'd mm. kind of define a multi-generational family where there's continuity that goes back at least three or four generations, you know, where people know where they came from, that they've worked together as a team, that they've owned assets together. They've, they've stewarded those, they've, they've, it's a, th those kinds of families, they do rule. Like you can't, you, unless you do something to, to uh, stop them, they will always uh, get into those positions because you can succeed over the course of three or four generations so much farther than you can at, in one individual lifetime. And so you have individuals that push through that and that, that do 
uh, become a ruling individual. And that happens all the time. And then they stop and then, you know, it, it ends. But these multi-generational families oftentimes keep going and going and going and going and going um, because that's that's part of the nature of how powerful it is to to how much influence and how much strength there is when you continue to work together as a team. And so I'm hearing, and I want to just bring this to the forefront, almost like highlight it in the conversation, creating a multi-generational team or multi-generational family, yes, has to do potentially with money and financial resources that you're building from one generation to the next, but even more important is the culture. Yeah. And the culture, I mean, there's a, uh, an article we read that was basically culture eats structure for breakfast. It was a um, play on that culture eats strategy for breakfast from Peter Drucker, I think said that, but he based this idea was, well, you can have all the right structure in place in your family. You can have the right systems, the right legal planning finished, but all of that's going to be completely sideswiped by a, a negative culture. And so if you have a negative culture, you need to intentionally pull that in a positive direction and have healthy relationships and healthy con- connection and communication in the family. And so um, we have only about 10 minutes left of the conversation today, but can you kind of pull out some additional pieces, maybe for somebody who's saying yes to everything that you're talking about here, they're feeling that desire to really invest deeply in their family culture, whether their kids are right now three and seven years old, or whether they're, you know, teenagers already. Can you just kind of go quickly through some of the things that you mentioned breaking down into a week and um, in the year in terms of your time and having rhythms with that and things that you do more frequently? What are some other things that you would just highlight as pieces of a family culture that if you really said, I'm looking into this family. They're really thriving. Things are going super well. What is that family doing in their yeah. culture? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the repeated practices would be my number one thing. Then I would also say stories are critical. You know, one of the things that if you if you have a business or a family culture and you, you create some values, what you want to do is have kind of like these canonical stories that are associated with each value. So like, let me tell you a story about how this value gets has been expressed historically in our family. Repeating those stories, don't be afraid to tell those stories at special occasions. Um, that's another thing. I I, I really like um, using physical space to to reflect uh, culture. So um, I I kind of like the that the idea that that a a house should be almost like a theme park of the family's family's values. Like you walk in and you're like, whoa, like what is this? What is that? You know, if you want to design something around hospitality, if you want to be you know, having people over to your house, if you want to have, you know, a multi-generational family household, if there's activities that you want to do as a family, like design your household and this can, you know, take time, but you, you know, like I, we're constantly thinking about, okay, how does our physical space reinforce the things that we care about as a family? Like is, does our facility facilitate our values or not? And is there ways to really amp that up? And so, um, so we've really tried to think about ways to design our family, once we started putting roots down in, in kind of what felt like our you know, much more stable long-term house, um, that's when we really started to express this um, in physical space much more than we've ever, ever had before. And then actually writing out those values, probably another big one for us is um, an annual family summit. There's a big part of this as your kids are getting older is you want them to be able to have a lot of influence over the family culture. You want them to, to be able to, to express their values and, and, their interests in the family mission and the vision and the values, but you have to have an arena for that. And so this is another one of those things that I've learned, you know, through business is that you need to have kind of these cadences of meetings. And so we, we do, you know, a, a two day family summit every, every winter around new year's and, you know, take our whole family away. And um, now our, our daughter, Kelsey is married. And so her husband, Matthew is coming along and things. Yeah. It's been awesome to, it's been such a cool journey to see us get into this new phase. Um, so part of this is like, we're, we're, we're having these conversations, you know, in our own household, we, we have meetings and then we have, we call it our third generation meeting and that will involve Kelsey and her husband and our family assets, um, and talk about like, okay, what are some things that we can do? And, and that, that the, the conversation around, around assets is for us is about culture. Like it's, it's actually underneath that umbrella. Cause if the question isn't like, okay, how do we just keep, you know, accumulating more? The question is what, what is the mission and how, how does this serve that? You know, and so we've had even recently some conversations about shifting some things around because because of values that we have as a family. Let's go after that and 
let's leverage, you know, resources to do that. Um, let's make sure that we're moving things in those directions. So yeah, there's a lot of tools that you can bring to bear to create, to create a culture. Um, I think another big part of this, especially early on in a marriage, uh, and when you have a young family is really how the husband and wife are beginning to intertwine the things that their callings, their gifts into a unique expression of the family. So instead of having one person dominate that, I think it's really important and or both or really what happens in our culture is both uh, really are individuals going off and doing their own thing. And then it's like, we've got to, well, you know, those can be really powerful elements and callings that we need to make sure we steward. But it's really one of the things you can do that's really simple is to say, you know, even though I really care about this thing and you really care about that thing and these things are kind of mutually exclusive and we can't do them at the same time, we both care about this thing. And even though maybe we care about that a little bit less than, you know, our individual pursuits, well, we're married. So let's go after the things. Here are the three things that we really, we both really care about. Well, that's, those are huge clues to the beginnings of the foundation of that family culture. So lean in to the things that you and your spouse really care about in common um, and, and make sure that you're practicing those things and adopting those things um, more and more uh, as a part of what, what the family does and, and how, how that, that family's made up. And so, yeah, we 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 try to make every like individual pursuit um, a family pursuit, even if you know, even if at some level, you know, it's like one of our kids or me or April are really working on something. There's always this larger question we want to always ask, and that's how how can the family team get around that? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, maybe it's just as simple as we'll pray for you, we'll you know write you notes, we'll you know we'll have FaceTime while you're gone. But more often than not, it's much more involved than that. Like, let's all go or let's, let's have this part of the family go and participate and serve in this way. And like we, so that's a, you know, we just got back from um, this morning, we were driving out to our cabin and my wife is, you know, she's property managing that. We're try, trying to turn that into an Airbnb, you know, and, you know, our, we all had to get up early, early in the morning. And my 16 year old wasn't super excited about getting up at six in the morning on a, you know, a day like this. And jumping in the van and driving an hour and a half away to get to that place. But we're like, I went up to her and I said, Hey honey, we're doing this together. Like we want to be together and we've got, you know, a couple hours of work we got to do at the cabin. So, you know, like we could always capitulate to the individual preferences, but it's like, man, no, we want to be a team. Like let's be a family. Um, and of course there's, you know, there's times to, to give into some of those preferences, but, but there needs to be a lot of strength and gravity to draw, draw the family together. And that's, that's really what's often missing. Man, I I feel like we could continue the conversation for a really long time. I I definitely want to uh, make sure that you have the chance to tell people how to get a hold of you. I do want to, I will promote your podcasts. There's multiple of them. Um, I've listened to even all the dads building teams and um, I can't remember all the names of your, I think there's just a family teams podcast. We've listened to Lucas and I both listened to most of, most of all of those episodes fantastic resources, especially if you have questions for things like, look, I'm a grandparent and now I really care about family culture, but my kids are out of the house. How do I think about family culture when I don't have a home life where my kids are in that on a regular basis? Or how do I deal with things like getting my teenagers on board with now we're a family team? Wait, what? where's this coming from? I don't want to be on the family team. Mm, I mean, ultimately, you're answering some challenging questions that people are really asking where maybe they have their heart turned towards this idea that they really want to invest well in family. And maybe it's a mom, maybe it's a dad, but wherever that's starting from, sometimes there's challenges and roadblocks. So I would definitely recommend your podcast. You have courses. I've been through your fatherhood course as well um, because Lucas was like, this is really, really good and super valuable. Even if you're not a dad, you're leading your family. I had to sit family. with me and watch it. <laughs> yeah, it <was laughs> tremendous. And so then right. you have multiple books too. So I'll just say family revision. I don't, I have not read all of these. Lucas has mostly read family revision. I am in it now. You have 31 creative ways to build your family team and the father's compass. I'm sure there are others as well. Jeremy, is this all your books? Yes. Yeah. And oh, I can awesome. share with you guys one additional resource. And this kind of gets back to a question that Bruce asked. He said, Hey, isn't it, you know, what do you do in our culture now where kids are sort of a liability? People used to actually design their economic life around the family. Um, and that's really, it's really hard on the family when everyone, um, all of our productive work hours are done away from our, our family. Um, and so we started a, a, um, a, an annual, a year long coaching intensive called Family Inc., where 
Um, we just had 31 families sign up for it. And so we're kind of, we'll be open in the cart again in a couple of months. But that, that uh, Family Inc. is where I take a whole year to coach families to how to create an economic engine at the center of their family, how to launch awesome. a business, how to start an asset, how to create some kind of productive activity that allows them to share the work hours. And so we, we work through all kinds of challenges that has to, you know, various career paths and transitions that, that, that may require and, and how to work through all of that. And so there's lots and lots of coaching times that I do with families to kind of work through those things. But we have seen in our area, we've coached many, many families who, who were on, I would say, just traditional career paths and then had found ways to launch assets and then began to spend more and more of their time with their family. Because I, I think it is really hard on a family when you look at your time and you really want to be a team, especially if you have a very demanding career and you just find yourself spending 50, 60 hours a week away from your, your family. And you're like, ah, I want to get some of that time you know, into the family. And so that might require making a transition like that. So that's why we started Family Inc. That is awesome. So go to familyteams.com to find everything, yeah, all, all your contact, all your work, your blogs, your podcasts, books, everything, right? That's right. So familyteams.com. Um, we are basically at the top of the hour. Um, Jeremy, if you kind of had to summarize, what would you say is the secret behind creating family culture? Or if you had to say, what is the secret to creating a strong family culture? What would you say about that? I think you, you want your kids, everyone to feel like they belong there more than anywhere else. It's a sense of belonging. And I would say that the, the thing to focus on is always look out for the person in the family who feels the least like they belong. And you will teach your family more by going after that person and really uh, enfolding that person, find out why they're, they're, this, this is not a place. And so pay attention to that child, that person, whoever in the family, like that's what's going to create this, this sense. If, we all, if they feel like, no, there's a place for all of us in this family. And this is, this is, this is a place where we, we feel the most. And I, I love the phrase that what belonging is about is about being fully known and fully loved at the same time. So to really know the members of your family within all, you know, all their, all their weaknesses, all their struggles, and to, to communicate to them that they are fully loved here and they always will be. Um, that's really the, the bedrock of belonging that creates culture. Ah, that's so, so awesome. Um, I will go ahead and close this out here. Um, I love that togetherness. Um, I'll say this, we inter interviewed Mitzi Perdue. I'm not sure if you know who she is, but she talks a lot about family culture, family values. She came from the Perdue family and the Sheraton oh, families right. that owned those assets. And she just highlighted this super simple practice of saying, you know, in order to have a strong family, you need to be able to tell the family story and feel that you're connected. And yes. what better way to do that than to have family dinner together? And that. Yes maybe seems like, uh, you know, like super obvious to somebody who's already doing it, or maybe complete epiphany to somebody who's not, but just having family dinner together on a regular basis, like aiming for seven days a week. I mean, that in itself is countercultural and can move you light years towards really creating and improving because culture is not something that you're going to start today and finish tomorrow. It's something you're going to continue to build through the rest of your life. So. Jeremy, this has just been a privilege and an honor to talk with you today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for diving into this concept and this conversation. We hope that you do have questions. We hope that you will reach out to familyteams.com. And we also would just remind you that you have all the resources available at themoneyadvantage.com where we can help you really get clear on how to make your money do the most for you so that you're not only enjoying it today, but you're also able to create that multi-generational legacy of more than money. So in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, 
click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.